Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Laura Coates, and this is CNN Tonight. You know, when it comes to persuading your jury, here's what every prosecutor knows. You tell them what you're going to tell them. You tell them that, and then you told them what you told them. But beware, the jury is going to have to keep you honest, and they will hold you accountable. That's why for so many, you under-promise, and then you over-deliver, which leads you right to that moment when you have more than satisfied your burden of proof. There's no room for any reasonable doubt. Well, last night's hearing was that tell them what you're going to tell them part. Now, there were moments where they teased the actual telling, the testimony of prominent figures who were relevant, not just because of their proximity to then-President Trump, but also maybe for the role they played within the government, maybe as a member of Congress or a White House aide, or maybe they were playing the role of lawyer in a courtroom, trying to convince a judge of a big lie. I wonder if it surprised any of you to see testimony as part of that tell-em part from one-time Trump loyalists like former Attorney General Bill Barr, calling Trump's stolen election like, quote, bullshit, unquote. Was it surprising to hear, say, Ivanka Trump, even saying that she believed Barr, saying that she respected him? Over her own father, she believed him when it came to his unsubstantiated claims of mass voter fraud. It altered her perspective, I believe she said. Did it further surprise you that to see her own father pushing back at her testimony today in a social media post saying, quote, Ivanka was not involved in looking at or studying election results she had long since checked out. Or did it surprise you to hear one injured Capitol Police officer who described the hell that she went through, the carnage she witnessed, saying that she was even slipping on a fellow officer's blood? Or maybe the words of committee vice chair Liz Cheney saying how some House Republicans allegedly lobbied the Trump White House after January 6th for pardons. The Republican herself, you know, is extremely vulnerable in her own seat. She lost her conference leadership post because she wouldn't tow the GOP line on any of this. They call her a rhino in many parts of the GOP. And now she's at risk of losing her seat in Congress. But it seemed... If yesterday was any indication, none of that is holding her back from speaking her mind. I say this to my Republican colleagues who are defending the indefensible. There will come a day when Donald Trump is gone, but your dishonor will remain. Well, what she hopes remains in the brains of those listening, and she and the rest of the panel are trying to drill in on, is and hone in on is whether former President Trump or anyone in his close orbit may have been involved in this violent plot. You know, we could be closer than ever to actually learning those answers. Are there going to be witnesses that describe actual conversations between these extremist groups and anyone in Trump's orbit? 
Yes. There will be. Yes. Definitively, yes, he says. Well, so the committee is really saying, stay tuned. But of course, remember what the prosecutors would know if this were a criminal courtroom. Because now comes the work. This is now the tell them part, a.k.a. the time when you got to deliver the goods, not just the soundbite, but the context that proves it's not deceptively cherry picked somehow or can be easily refuted. But if they can substantiate the preview, if they can prove the preview, you know, their job doesn't exactly end there. If this were a criminal trial, you'd ask for the jury to find the defendant guilty of X, Y, and Z. You'd actually know who the defendant is. But this isn't a criminal court, and it's not precisely clear if if there is a singular target. And this is, after all, a congressional chamber. And they're going to have to make a case differently than a criminal prosecution, not for a conviction, but for the American electorate to understand what it was like to have a republic only one we couldn't keep. They have to make the case for still caring about what happened on January 6th in June of the following year. And they have to make the case of how they're going to be able to use their legislative and oversight functions and powers to prevent that from having been a dry run on January 6th, let alone a blueprint. And it's really who they're going to have to make their case to, who their jury, so to speak, will be, their audience. That might present their biggest challenge. I mean, the question is, is it the entire electorate? Is it one political party? Is it the choir, the converted, or the non-believers? Or is it the Department of Justice and the very branch that does have the power to pursue criminal charges? Now, here's what we do know about this television audience of pseudo-jurors. A lot of people were watching last night's main event. In fact, more than 20 million people tuned in, according to a preliminary Nielsen tally. You know, that's 20 million. That's more than this year's Olympics viewership average. It's on par with the ratings of, say, a Sunday night football game. But perhaps nowhere near, say, the numbers a a presidential debate might draw. But still, 20 million. The next public hearings are set for Monday and Wednesday and Thursday. And a lot more information is being promised. So here comes the part where you tell them what you said you tell them. But whose voices will they hear? And what will they see? And will it be enough to get you over? Let's see what we can learn and gather from one of those panel members on what to expect. Congresswoman Stephanie Murphy, Democrat from Florida. Welcome to CNN Tonight, Congresswoman. How are you? It's great to be with you. You know, a lot of questions now, since we've seen at least the preliminary day of hearings, the first public hearings, hearing the testimony of one of the officers, learning from a documentarian, hearing those snippets of people who are certainly central to the Trump orbit, what were you hoping to convey most from last night? I think that um, after last night's um, hearing that the American people should understand that we are about to lay out through a series of hearings that January 6th didn't happen by accident, that it happened because there was somebody who was willing to subvert the will of the American people in order to uh, ensure his will to stay in power, and that was Donald Trump. And there were a number of people around him, some who were accomplices, 
and some who decided that their morality and their conscience wouldn't allow them to move forward. And so it was a um, bottom line upfront uh, preview of the next uh, hearings that are going to come across. And then in those hearings, we were going to provide the detail, much like we did in the first hearing, in first-person um, uh, testimonies as well as documentation to have the American people hear, not in my voice, not in the voices of necessarily the members of this committee, but rather in the voices of the people around former President Trump, who either knew better and didn't do well, or knew better and pieced out of the situation so that they wouldn't be uh, caught up in what they thought was either morally or criminally objective. There's a lot of information to synthesize, and I know you began with the likes of the Attorney General Bill Barr and just the idea of the highest law enforcement officer in the land at one time calling BS. You know, he did not abbreviate the term, but calling BS, which really had me wondering about the idea of how you were trying to piece together the question that a lot of people were asking when January 6th happened, which was, what was the president of the United States doing and thinking and saying while we were all watching what was unfolding? Are you confident that you'll be able to answer that question through various conduits that are credible? And will it stand to be able to withstand those who are already doubting and saying, no, no, I never said that. Congressman Steve Perry, for example, I, I never asked for a pardon. Others saying they was out of context. I see you tilt your head because I, I can already anticipate you realizing these are going to be the retorts people will give you. What do you do to withstand that scrutiny? What I am trying to do is not to convince the Scott Perrys or the people who have already committed the kinds of um, moral and uh, uh, maybe potentially criminal um, decisions. What I am trying to do is, as a committee, lay out the facts for the American people. And what I'm asking of the American people is that they set aside their partisan uh, affiliations, not a Republican, not a Democrat, not an independent, but rather think about what our democracy means. What does it mean for you to come to the polls and cast your vote? Can you still feel like your vote is counted? And just because your team doesn't win doesn't mean that you get an opportunity to try to dismantle this democracy so that your team can stay in power. And our democracy is dependent on the rule of law, the process, as well as uh, a peaceful transition of power. And so I'm trying to make that uh, pitch to the American people, whatever their political affiliations. Congresswoman Stephanie Murphy, thank you so much for your time. We'll look forward to seeing it all unfold in front of us. I appreciate it. I want to talk now to someone who was there in the room for the hearings, a.k.a. in the room where it happens. And he is also the D.C. Metropolitan Police Officer who's seen here, trapped in a doorway as rioters attacked him with his own baton during the insurrection difficult even now to watch this. Daniel Hodges joins me now. Officer Daniel Hodges, thank you for being a part of the program tonight. It, it's difficult for me as a viewer and witness to watch this. It's very difficult I for you to see this still, even more than a year later. How did it feel to be in that courtroom last night 
I mean, you see the, the chamber. I keep calling it a courtroom because I really did witness, in many respects, a laying out of a case against someone. Um, what did it feel like for you to be in that room? I was glad to be there. Um, I'm always, yeah, it's, um, you know, watching footage from that day always makes my, uh, makes my blood pressure shoot up, makes my heart race. But I'm, uh, I'm very glad that there's a preponderance of the evidence, so to speak. And um, I'm glad that I was able to see it there, and I'm glad that the American people have been able to see it. What do you hope will be the outcome? I was just talking to a congresswoman who is a part of the committee, and obviously their role is legislative. What do you hope will be the results and outcomes of these hearings? I hope that at the end of these hearings, um, there will be accountability in some form for those responsible for what happened that day. I hope that um, I hope that Merrick Garland is watching. I hope that the Justice Department can uh, move uh, forward in criminal matters to uh, charge those and uh, make sure that they face accountability. Does that include those who might be still members of Congress or people who are in the upper echelons of government who may have been powers that be, so to speak? Absolutely. Um, the members of Congress... Uh, Part of what was said last night was that multiple Republican members of Congress sought pardons uh, from President Trump at the time. And what the American people need to know is that, I believe it's according to uh, Burdick versus the United States Supreme Court case, in order to accept a presidential pardon, you have to admit guilt. So they knew that they committed a crime. They knew that whatever crime they committed was so egregious they didn't even want to wait to find out whether they, um, whether they were going to get caught. They immediately sought a pardon. So they knew they committed a crime, and they knew that they needed to get it uh, pardoned immediately. So whatever they are guilty of, if it amounts to sedition, then they are, it sounds hyperbolic, but they are the enemy of the people. They do not deserve to be in Congress. In many ways, Chairman Benny Thompson initiated the, the hearing last night talking about the oath of office and reminding the American public about the way it changed following the Civil War and invoking former President Lincoln on that very point about the idea of swearing this oath to defend, you know, domestic terrorists, enemies foreign and domestic on this very notion. You know, I, I often wonder, for people who have been watching and the time has gone by for different reasons for those of the electorate, but for you and for your colleagues to hear, you know, another officer yesterday, Officer Edwards, speaking about what happened, to relay her experience. The, behind her, there were widows of officers lost in the line of duty, experiencing what you have recalled, the mother of Brian Sicknick. What is the morale like for you when you reflect on the role you played to defend the Capitol? Have your views changed over time about what that means to you? My views haven't changed. I was proud during, I was proud afterwards, and I'm still proud of the work I did that day. You know, I, um, I think the only uh, semi-negative emotion that I hear from other officers is everyone wishes they could have done more. Everyone wishes that uh, we could have kept them out completely. Unfortunately, we were just so completely outnumbered and overwhelmed that that was impossible. But we, we did everything we could, and um, we're definitely proud of the work we did that day. As you should be. And we'll be looking to see whether there is anyone who has 
offended the pride of the nation. Officer Daniel Hodges, thank you so much for being a part of the program and your continued effort to try to aid in the American public's illumination of what happened that day. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Thank you. And there is other big news to get to tonight. We cannot, for one moment, forget about Uvalde. These victims and families, they too deserve answers. The school police chief being blamed for the slow response, you see him right there, to the massacre, he's just given his first extensive interview in which he said he didn't know he was the one in charge that day, among a lot of other things. In fact, one of the reporters he spoke to was going to join us next, and that's a conversation I want to have. We'll be right back. So for the first time, the Uvalde school police chief is giving his side of the story, essentially defending last month's police response to the massacre where 19 children and two teachers were murdered. In an interview with the Texas Tribune, guided by his attorney, Chief Pete Arredondo says he never considered himself the incident commander. He also blamed the delayed action on the classroom's steel-enforced doors, that there was no way to break them down. But they had to wait for the right keys, he said. Now, CNN has reached out to its Texas safety officials in the school district for comment. But according to Arredondo's attorney, the chief isn't giving out any more interviews at this time. James Baragan is one of the reporters who spoke to Chief Arredondo for the Texas Tribune, and he joins me now. James, I'm glad you're here. I have to tell you, we've all been waiting to hear from this chief in some form or capacity. I'm actually a little bit surprised that at this point in, several weeks later, he is saying that he didn't think he was the incident commander. First of all, could that be right? And two, why is he only saying that now? Hi, Laura. Thanks for having me on your show. And I think that is the question that so many people have had um, in terms of was he the incident commander? If it wasn't him, who was it or who was it supposed to be? But he is telling, or at least he told us in our interview uh, definitively that he went in there. He never thought he was the incident commander, never identified himself as the incident commander, and really never gave an order for any officers to stand down for breaching the room. Um, You've alluded to some of the points that he's made in the interview in terms of sort of giving some context as to why uh, it took law enforcement more than an hour to get inside the room. And I think that really was his goal. Uh, to explain sort of the law enforcement response, because he is he's cognizant, obviously, that this has become a national story and that every move is being scrutinized. What was his attitude in terms of describing why he his reason to tell you he was not the incident commander? Did he believe that he was being scapegoated? Was he trying to ensure people knew that there were other people involved? What was the motivation he explained? Well, he was very clear that uh, he was not trying to point the finger at anyone else, at any other agency. Um, And he made very clear that he was proud of the law enforcement response, uh, not just from his police department or the city's police department, but every every agency that responded. But he is also a member of the community. You know, he he grew up there. He went to Robb Elementary. He spent the first 16 years of his career at the Uvalde Police Department, um, and he knew some of the victims um, in, in, in the shooting. Um, so it's very close to him. And he told us that he hadn't spoken out out of respect for 
the, the families that were grieving, but he wanted to, at this point, several weeks out, give that context that he thought was needed for what he thought was inaccurate or incomplete information that had been released by uh, state and law enforcement authorities so far. It's not your job to defend him. I know you are the reporter who is bringing the information that we so desperately want. I just have to sort of raise my eyebrow in incredulity here to think of the word proud being used in terms of the police response in the same sentence. But one of the things he spoke about is this steel jam door. This has played a significant role in his response to you. In fact, he discusses that maybe the safety protocols that were in place within the school worked against the response. Tell me why. Right. It's not our it's not our job to, to defend his actions. We don't pass judgment on the actions. And I would encourage all your viewers to go read our story and, and decide for themselves. But to your point about these steel uh, or there, these reinforced doors that he's talking about, he is telling us. And I think this is a new detail that hasn't been reported before um, that he checked uh, the door um, for, for the for the classroom where the gunman was trying to see if he can get inside and see if law enforcement officers could get inside and contain the shooter. Um, he checked the door, found that it was locked, and then that created a whole new set of problems because these doors are sort of the response that we as a society have had to potential active shooter incidents. They're designed to be very safe for the people who are inside, usually students and teachers, and very difficult for people on the outside, theoretically attackers, to break it in or get inside. But when the gunman was able to get inside the classroom, uh, that is when Arredondo says, sort of the situation gets flipped and it becomes very difficult for law enforcement to uh, get inside, break down the door as people have suggested. Um, and, and, and now the shooter is inside very safe with potential victims. And that's what caused the delay. He then asked for keys or extrication tools. And those uh, were a long time coming. You know, I'm, I do encourage everyone to read this really important piece, to give that information, to give that context, and also to really dive into that notion of the barricade versus the active shooter component that really stems upon, uh, is dovetailing perfectly from that conversation about the steel doors as well. James Barragan, thank you so much for bringing us this information. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. There's reaction ahead from a Texas state senator who's been demanding answers from Uvalde officials from the start. So why is he just now hearing it like the rest of us? Does he believe Chief Arredondo's account? We're going to ask him next. So as you just saw, embattled Uvalde school police chief Pete Arredondo is finally speaking out, this time in an interview with the Texas Tribune. And he's defending the hour-long delay where law enforcement did not confront the gunman who gunned down 19 children and 21 adults for a period of time. Joining me now, Texas State Senator Roland Gutierrez, who present, represents Uvalde. Senator, thank you for joining me tonight. I, I wonder what your immediate reaction is to this reporting that he is now saying several weeks out that he didn't think he was even the incident commander. What's your reaction to that? I think we're having trouble hearing the state senator. I'm not, I'm not hearing you, sir. Are we able to get his, let's get his, 
Let's get his sound up because I really, given all the work that he's done to try to get information from the officials, we've heard his voice probably more than any other voice in this investigation thus far. And so what he has to say is really important. And I'm going to just make sure we hear it. So let's take a second to get it right, to regroup, because the voices we invite on this show are the ones we need to listen to. Let's go to a quick break. We'll be right back. All right, thanks for sticking with us. We've got the audio kinks all worked out with Texas State Senator Roland Gutierrez, who represents Uvalde. And I'm so glad that you're here because I really wanted to speak with you in particular, given all that you have done to try to get information to the community, to the nation at large, about what's happening in Uvalde. What was your reaction to the, tex- to the Texas Tribune reporter's article where Arredondo says he didn't know he was incident commander? Yeah, Laura. And essentially now we have these two competing narratives. We have the Tribune article. We have the New York Times article that came in within an hour after le- after the legislative committee hearing ended. Um, DPS is saying one thing. That's our state troopers in Arredondo saying another. It's a real cause for concern. What I want to know from the people that are accountable to the state legislature and what I've been asking for all along is how many DPS troopers were in there? What other law enforcement entities were in there? Uh, in that hallway within that span of 45 minutes. And we have yet to get that information. I was going to say, I mean, those are pretty basic questions. You know, it doesn't have to go to extensive reporting, just these answers. Why is it, do you think, the answers are not coming? I mean, the lawyer in me says, and I'm always skeptical of people, is it a matter of lawyering up? Is it a matter of trying to get your story straight, to smell like roses? What is it? Why don't we know more? You know, Laura, this was uh, admittedly by Steve McCraw. This was a breakdown in law enforcement protocols. Admittedly, this was law enforcement failure. And I think that there's always this thing where everybody wants to point the fingers at each other. But clearly, law enforcement failed at every level, the local level, the sheriff level, the state trooper level. At every level, there was system failure and human error. Um we have to get beyond that. We can't be, hide, be hiding behind a criminal investigation. We need accountability and transparency so that this never happens again. As a policymaker, I'm concerned that the governor has put $4 billion on the border and the law enforcement entity that was there probably had 40 or 50 cops on scene wasn't part of the solution of breaking into that room faster. These are real questions that need to be answered. And to hear, heretofore, we haven't gotten those answers. Well, there are some, you know, there's the DOJ, the legislature, they're vowing to try to investigate what's happened to put some, I guess, intellectual muscle and um, and support behind this as well. But do you have any confidence? I mean, just given the systemic errors that you have already articulated, do you have concern and should the greater world have concern about the ability to really get and drill down to the details that will help this community, not just me and you understanding, but the, those who have been victimized, those who are living with this day in, day out, who deserve to have the answers. Do you have confidence that's going to happen? I think as of yesterday, I saw perversion of the process. Mm-hmm. Someone from either DPS or the governor's office or, or someone in the House leaked out much of that reporting from that legislative committee hearing. Arredondo here again does his own interview yesterday with this other media group and has perverted the process to a certain degree. We've got a district attorney who's saying, well, we're going to wait because we've got maybe some criminality we're looking at. All I'm asking is logistical positioning. 
I want to know which law enforcement agency was in that hallway. That is transparency that we need to have and those those parents need to have. You know, we've been hearing a lot about democracy these days. Without transparency, we don't have democracy. You know, I mean, it's so well said. And the idea of just to just think of, you know, in journalism, we think about the who, what, when, where, why, how. The fact that we can't yet get past the who. And here we are with funeral services, with grieving families, with people desperate to understand. And, and here you are trying to get those answers I see this is very, it's very emotional, and I know that it continues to be for the community because we can't forget that this is a community. This is, we are people who are trying to grapple with this. State Senator Roland Gutierrez, thank you. Thank you, Laura. Thank you so much. <coughs> excuse me. Now, the rough economic picture is getting rougher. The Dow, excuse me, I'll have a sip of tea because I don't want to have a frog in my throat. Here's what we know. The Dow tanked this afternoon <clears throat> with inflation. I got a break. What's going on? Am I getting choked up? We'll be right back. So Star Trek II was in theaters. The last time we saw prices that were rising this fast. And you might not know, but I am a real Trekkie. I just can't do the hand thing. But the painful reality is today's inflation numbers are now the highest in 40 years years, even as more people go back to work. The reality is we're all paying more <clears throat> for just about everything. The president today, well, he had lots of blame ready. Putin's price hike is hitting America hard. Exxon made more money than God this year. But when it comes to solutions, well, the administration says this. We are open to ideas. Well, Let's discuss those ideas that you're open to. Now with the senior advisor to the president, Gene Sperling. Gene, thank you for joining me tonight. What are these ideas? Because as President Biden spoke about, as your colleagues spoke about, you're open to ideas. What are the ideas that you have for the table and for the American people? You know, look, Laura, I think the president is leveling with people and letting them know that these gas prices are global, global phenomenon, that they are very much caused by the un unthinkable war of aggression in Ukraine. You know, that's not a shift of blame. That's just a description. Prices were $3.31 on January 17th when Putin uh, started doing military exercises in Belarus. They're $4.99 right now, and they've had higher jumps in other countries. Now, that's not any comfort to any American going to the gas pump, but it is the fact that we are all suffering from this, again, this unthinkable aggression. What the president's made clear is he gets it. Yes, we've had record job growth. Yes, we have 3.6% unemployment. Yes, 4.2 million people have come back into the workforce. Those are all signs of a recovery that is still going. But for an American family, as you were saying, going up to the gas pump, going through the grocery line, you know, they're getting hit by by higher prices than they should need to. Now, we're not going to pretend there is a, you know, <clears throat> silver bullet that's going to stop the the global phenomenon of the gas price going up. But doesn't mean there's not things we can do. The president's already released a historic amount of oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. He's already allowed E15 gasoline to be available to put some downward pressures. Uh, he called today for legislation to prevent the exorbitant hikes on shipping that are being passed on to Americans to 
uh, do other measures that Congress can do with them to, you know, that might not directly hit gas, but still lower the price that, that, that families are paying in prescription drugs, internet, utility bills. And finally, yes, we're, we're glad that natural gas production is at record levels, that oil production is at near record levels. But yes, you heard the president say today, he sees the record profits by the big oil companies, and he wants to make sure that everyone is asking, are they doing enough to bring back the 800,000 barrels a day of refinery capacity they closed down, to use the permits they have, and to make sure that their focus is more supply, lower prices for American families, and not record profits? Well, I can turn the question back to the administration, of course, Gene. Is the administration doing enough? And at a pace that actually is commensurate with what you're seeing of the fast pace of the rising inflation. I mean, you had Secretary Janet Yellen on Tuesday saying that tariff reductions could help bring down the prices as just one particular option and one idea. On Sunday, Commerce Secretary said it may make sense to lift some tariffs on goods. What is the administration's response to that notion? Those are two ideas. Those might offer some solutions, not only in the long term, but in the short run. What state of play is there? are we in? Well, you're right. I think there are lots of different things that we can do. And you saw the president reduce some tariffs on on solar equipment coming into the United States to also keep prices lower. You know, there's some things we could do uh, uh, that he can do on his own. Uh, with the passage of the bipartisan uh, infrastructure bill, he was able to get companies to commit together to uh, offer lower, even free internet service for up to 48 million households. That's something he could rally. There's uh, rally companies and others to commit to. But you know, Laura, there's so much more we could do if we had some cooperation from Congress. This shipping prices, company after company says the exorbitant uh, profits and the exorbitant price hikes of, sh of shipping companies bringing products into the U.S. is being passed on directly to consumers. We can stop that. We can at least reduce the pressure of prescription drug price by letting prices that families are same paying the same families by allowing Medicare to negotiate with companies and bring down those prices. And I think the president has made very clear that he is willing to look at other measures uh, related more directly to gas prices. But but listen, th this is a global phenomenon. There is not an, a, a silver bullet uh, to this Russian aggression at the moment. The fact that the president's being straight about that, but also making clear we're willing to do every single thing we can to help bring down gas prices. And look, you do see that forecasters do project that prices will moderate this year. But we understand, again, uh, that's of little comfort when people you know, are seeing the 499 at the at the gas pump and and getting another, you know, disappointing inflation <clears throat> report today. Yeah. Gene Sperling, you know, we look forward to hearing more from the administration. I mean, as the gas prices are rising, some people's bank accounts are really running on fumes, as you can imagine. Thank you for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you, Laura. Appreciate you having me. Well, we've got an amazing true crime story. I'm telling you, it's more than 40 years. More than 40 years have passed after a husband and wife were murdered. Now, their daughter, who is known as Baby Holly, is found alive and well. That's actually her holding the picture of her with her parents. My next guest is a big part of the reason why Baby Holly was found. And we'll look at how she used science to solve two mysteries. And will it help in the search for justice? We'll talk about it when CNN Tonight returns.
Listen to this story. A baby who vanished more than 40 years ago has been found and found alive and well. But the remarkable story is bittersweet. Baby Holly Klaus vanished along with her parents in 1980. Now, a religious group told their family that the couple ran away with them. But DNA testing proved just last year that the couple was murdered in 1981. However, that baby, who's now a grown woman, her life was spared. And she was reunited with her family over Zoom just on Tuesday. Now, Holly's grandmother telling CNN today, it's a blessing. I just kept praying and hoping and never gave up hope and believing in the Lord that he would reveal it to me eventually. I asked him to let me know what happened to my son and his wife and the baby before I die. And it's all happening. So we never gave up, none of us. Well, I'm joined tonight by the genealogist who helped ID the couple and also find baby Holly. Allison Peacock, welcome to the program. This story is unbelievable. I have to first ask, I mean, you found out that there was even a baby involved by speaking with one of the victim's family members. Tell me about how that even came to pass that you were aware. Hi, Laura. Yes, it was pretty shocking. You know, we were in the process of identifying a male and a female doe for Harris County. And when we got to the point where we needed to verify that we had the right identity, I made a phone call along with one of my colleagues to Debbie Brooks, and that's Donna's daughter and Dean's sister. And as soon as she validated that she did have a brother that had been missing for 40 years, and I gave her the bad news, the very next words out of her mouth were, what about the baby? And I I was speechless. I said, what baby? So we began going through the records and learning more about Holly and the fact that she was not found with her parents. Now, when you say you broke the bad news, it had been a cold case. They did not yet know that their loved ones had even been killed, let alone that the baby was missing, no, right? And that's, that's right. And that's one of the heinous things about this crime is that not only were the couple murdered, but the people that were behind this horrible crime went back and confronted the family with his car and tried to extort money and said, you know, we'll drive this car back to you because he doesn't need it. He's giving away all of his, his worldly possessions. And so they, they made it seem as if Dean and Tina were rejecting their families. And they said, they're with our cult now. They don't want to speak to you. They're rejecting family and worldly goods and just leave them alone. And so not only did they lose them physically, they lost them emotionally because they thought that they were being rejected. So um, that's, that's a pretty horrible thing. I mean, speaking of the emotional aspect, I mean, I, I'm wondering how baby Holly, how did she survive? Was she, what, was she raised by some, I mean, how did that happen? Well, you know, this is still an ongoing criminal investigation, but I think some of the things that they have announced were that she was raised in a happy family uh, by people that did not have anything to do with the crime. And what we do know is she was left in a church in Arizona and that someone affiliated with that church 
um, eventually adopted her after some length of time. They had to have a home study and do everything, you know, on, on the up and up. I don't think anybody could have convinced them at the time that they were taking in a child that had been stolen because I think the story that they were told is that they were giving up this baby because, you know, we're in a cult and they won't let us keep her. So, again, it's there's a, a lie planted that makes them not look any further for the family. And, um, you know, Holly probably grew up thinking her parents didn't want her because they preferred religion to her. What was her reaction? I mean, when she realized this, I mean, it was not only a shock to the family who thought they'd been rejected, but for her, I mean, it's quite bittersweet to know that she had biological parents who not only had been murdered, but this is how she's learning about it. Right. Well, you know, I wasn't in the room when she learned about it. I met her on the Zoom meeting. And I know that at some point, Holly's going to tell you her story and how Mm. she feels, but I don't really feel comfortable telling you her story. I think it's her story to tell. I think that's very respectful. I understand. But I really want to know, Allison Peacock, I mean, you normally work with DNA or a genealogist. Uh, Is this going to be Mm -hmm. something we should look for in terms of the the ability to be able to solve crimes such as this? It must have been a shock to you as well, knowing the work you do to lead to this sort of consequence and result. It's very unusual. In in all the cases I've heard of, in all the, the studying I've done, the reading I've done about cases, being a genealogy nut for years, um, I've never heard of anything like this. And that's what was so shocking about it, because the implications were that the child being missing had to have had something to do with the murder. And to realize 40 year la- years later, oh my gosh, this child's been possibly, you know, in the company of somebody that killed her parents. Wow. So it's a very unusual case, very unique. Yeah. Allison Peacock, thank you for sharing. We appreciate it. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And now, welcome to a bonus hour of CNN Tonight. I'm Laura Coates, still, and Don Lemon is off tonight. Now, on the heels of the first comprehensive look at the January 6th committee's findings, the Justice Department has just released brand new video from the riot at the Capitol. Now, I warn you, This is graphic video, and it does include strong language. Get him! Get him! Get these motherfuckers! We're coming through! We're coming through! We are coming back! For nearly a year, the January 6th committee has been trying to piece together how this happened, different vantage points, who was involved from the bottom to the top. And last night, they unveiled some new video of its own and concerning findings in its very first public hearing. President Trump was yelling and, quote, really angry at advisors who told him he needed to be doing something more. And aware of the rioters' chance to hang Mike Pence, the president responded with this sentiment, quote, maybe our supporters have the right idea. Mike Pence, quote, deserves it. Wow. Well, what the American people deserve are answers and information and the truth. And, of course, the people who fought to defend our capital that day, well, they deserve it as well. And among them, 
Former D.C. Metropolitan Police Officer Mike Fanone, who is now a CNN law enforcement analyst. I want to get his take on the hearing um, that happened just last night. Michael Fanone, I'm glad that you're here and you are precisely who we want to hear from because you were there. We remember the battle. We remember what was described even last night to refresh our memory as if we had forgotten about the mortal hand-to-hand combat. And I, I want to know what was your take? How did you think the hearing on the first day went. Do you think people have more insight into what really happened? I mean, I think it was a good foundation, um, a good start. Uh, I mean, I I always revert back to my time in law enforcement. I mean, you were a prosecutor. You know, this was a a great uh, opening statement. Um, What I'm looking for in the future is for uh, the select committee to build on that I mean, they've done a good job so far, at least in my opinion, of lining up uh, the activities of January 6th and, uh, and the days leading up to it and specific statements that were made, uh, not just by Trump, but also by um, those in his inner circle uh, and what was, um, you know, partially his thought process, but, but also those around him pertaining to Uh, the results of the 2020 election. You know, I want to know the idea of the questions that you have in particular. We know the law enforcement collectively outmanned, overrun. We know, we saw this. I mean, you know it intimately. What do you want answered? Your vantage point was what none of us really had. Being right there, you saw this unfolding. What are the questions you're looking to, even outside of what the commander-in-chief and the president of the United States was doing. Do you have questions about how this could have happened in the first place in terms of intelligence failures or security protocols? What are your questions? Yeah, I mean, uh, civil disturbance was never my um, forte. Mm -hmm. I spent most of my time in narcotics. Mm -hmm. But uh, I don't need to be an expert in civil disturbance to tell you that uh, this was a catastrophic failure of planning and preparation. Um, and, you know, that's not to criticize the individual officers that responded. Uh, right. I mean, it was it was in spite of their leadership that they were able to hold the line at the Capitol. Um, and I'm not a cop anymore, uh, but I certainly um, shed uh, my fair share of blood at the Capitol that day. And I think that um, U.S. Capitol Police leadership owes it to their officers, and to the uh, agencies that responded that day to assist, um, to be transparent in their failures, and also to show some accountability. I mean, quite frankly, there are people in leadership positions within that agency that have absolutely no business leading uh, men and women uh, in, um, in situations like that. They should be removed. You know, and I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that we're going to have the clarity that you're talking about and the transparency and light as that antiseptic. But I also wonder, and you and I know Washington, D.C. very well, and there's this phrase about things that are happening inside the Beltway and what concerns those who are inside the Beltway versus those who are outside. Do you have concerns that the audience who is watching, this sort of the, the jury of the American electorate, Do you think it's getting to where it needs to be? Do you think that this is translating in a way that you're not just preaching, by you I mean the committee, not just preaching to the choir, 
but trying to have a broader tent. You think it's going to get through? Um, I mean, in all honesty, no, I do not. I think that, um, you know, at this point, uh, our country is too polarized in its politics. Um, people are, for the most part, uh, incredibly entrenched on their side of the political aisle. And uh, there's very few people uh, left in the middle who are open to, um, you know, negotiation. Um, but I, I don't think that the American people necessarily uh, is the only audience uh, that the select committee uh, is or should be addressing. Uh, I think ultimately, uh, I said last night that uh, the Department of Justice is the, the last line of defense uh, when it comes to our democracy. Well, we'll see if they indeed will hold that line in particular. Michael Fanon, thank you so much. Yes, ma'am. Thank you for having me. I want to bring in Ron Brownstein and Van Jones to talk about how these hearings played out and get some reaction from them as well. Gentlemen, you heard Michael Fanon just now. We've been watching him. We saw what happened on that day. There were others, many others, who we watched in horror as to how they valiantly tried to fend off this crowd of people. When you hear him wondering about whether it's going to translate and being really definitively saying he doesn't think that it'll overcome the entrenchment, I wonder, from your perspective, Ron, I'll go to you first, do you think he's right? Well, first of all, I, I think that the, uh, the committee, to a degree that I don't think has been fully appreciated today, is reframing the whole question. Laura. I mean, what we've been debating mostly for the 18 months is what role did Donald Trump's words on that day and his tweets play in summoning the mob and directing them toward the Capitol and the attack on the Capitol itself has been the, the, the central issue. The committee reframed the question that Americans have to be asking because they framed the attack on the Capitol as just one component of a larger attack on the democracy. I mean, they had they they made very clear that in their view, the attack on the Capitol that was the final stage of a seven-stage effort to overturn the election and to subvert American democracy. Um, and that I, I was struck as well by the repeated uh, language from, particularly from Representative Cheney, that what Trump did was not not only wrong, not only in the broad sense a violation of his oath of office, but that it was illegal. And so uh, I think they were both paving a path and pointing a finger at the attorney general in terms of making very clear that this was a multifaceted plot to try to uh, subvert the election result and that there's legal culpability there. And so, you know, look, there aren't that many people who can be moved in, in the country, but the parties are really closely divided. So it really doesn't take that many. Uh, to, to, to matter. Um, and, and, and that's like kind of one lane, public opinion. The other lane is the legal lane. And I think they, they've laid out a much broader uh, and even more consequential uh, indictment, broadly speaking, against the president, the former president that we've heard so far. Van, I want you to weigh in here because it's interesting. The, the second impeachment hearing, as you all know, was really about whether the words were incendiary, whether they were inciting the insurrection. Now it's more about this seven-part plan they've spoken about, the idea of, and there was a statement made that, look, on the morning of January 6th, President Donald Trump intended to remain the president of the United States. And we're seeing the way they have framed the discussion. When you were listening, though, Van, 
And, you know, you very early on were one of the people to predict Donald Trump's victory in, in the, when, he, when he first ran because you were having your pulse, you know, your thumb on the pulse of what people were thinking even outside of the box. What do you make of their presentation and its ability to sway? <clears throat> if anyone listened to Liz Cheney in particular, uh, she did an extraordinary job uh, of uh, laying out just how diabolical <laughs> Uh, how metho- metho- uh, the, the methodology, uh, we were facing uh, democracy hanging by a thread, uh, and that thread is still unraveling. Um, and so the problem is the people who most need to hear from her won't listen. Uh, that's the, the big tragedy, that you have a Cheney, Liz Cheney, daughter of Dick Cheney. This family is a pillar of American conservatism, and yet the conservative movement will not listen to them as she is begging for American democracy to survive and begging for people to look in the eyes of a coup attempt that played out. And by the way, Van, in- looking into the eyes of her own party, I want, to, I want you to respond because I want you, you to hear this, remind the people about what Congresswoman Liz Cheney spoke of. She's obviously in a very vulnerable position now in Wyoming. Um, it's no guarantee that she will retain her seat. In fact, it looks like a very uphill battle. But here's what she said about the legacy of those who essentially won't listen. In our country, we don't swear an oath to an individual or a political party. We take our oath to defend the United States Constitution. And that oath must mean something. Tonight, I say this to my Republican colleagues who are defending the indefensible. There will come a day when Donald Trump is gone, but your dishonor will remain. Van, is that the moment? That's what. But, sorry, yeah, that. I mean, that's it. I mean, uh, that's 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 powerful stuff. I mean, I if you study the American conservative movement as I do and as I have, uh, if you had told anybody even two years ago, three years ago, that the that the Cheneys would be standing against the entire conservative movement, saying that an obvious coup attempt is a coup attempt and wouldn't be listened to, it would be hard to imagine. And the dereliction of duty on the part of this president, uh, can you imagine if there had been 10,000 Muslims that attacked our Capitol in the middle of a joint session of Congress? This wasn't on the weekend. This is a joint session of Congress. And the president of the United States, what, what would Trump have done? He would have instantly uh, had a response. If it had been Black Lives Matter, if it had been 10,000 Smurfs, it had been 10,000 anything attacking. This is not somebody, Donald Trump, who's afraid uh, to use force. He wanted Black Lives Matter uh, activists shot down in the streets. And so the idea that somehow this rough, tough president that likes to knock heads together and says he needs to punch people is somehow for two, three, four, five hours has nothing to say about Mm. the American capital being attacked, and yet he's not a part of the coup. And the idea that he's going to continue to be an unindicted co-conspirator in the face of this, I think, is also shocking. But Liz Cheney, uh, no matter what happens to her electorally, has secured a place in history as a true profiling courage. Ron, I mean, that, it, the, invoking, the invoking of the idea of the unindicted co-conspirator for our audience, of course, is reminiscent yep. of what happened with Michael Cohen and the idea of, well, this person be named. There was a lot made about the Proud Boys last night and the discussion surrounding their planning, their strategizing, a documentarian testified as well. This was all in prime time. The future hearings yes. may not all be in prime time. What do you make of the ability to not only retain the attention, but to have it at a, for a sustained p- pace, a sustained period of time for the American public. 
Well, look, this is a very different world than Watergate when there were fewer options for people and, you know, everyone pretty much was drinking from the same fountain in terms of the information they were getting. So obviously it's going to be more diffuse. I am less pessimistic than some that that there is no audience that that is willing to hear this. I mean, it is true that, you know, roughly 40 or 45 percent of Republican voters say that they uh, essentially only listen to conservative media. But there is a piece, there is a quarter of the Republican electorate that does does not echo the big lie that says a little even a little more than that, that said that they do use mainstream media sources. And I think the quality and the quantity of the evidence that is being put forward is going to you know be a challenge for them. I, you know, I, big movement is not possible anymore in, in American public opinion, but uh, small movement can have big impact. And I don't think this is a big you know uh, factor in the 2022 election. Midterms are a snapshot on the uh, condition of the country and inflation dominates everything. But the question of whether Americans want to trust Donald Trump with executive power and the nuclear codes and control of federal law enforcement after all of this, I, I think it's too early to say that this this will have no effect. I will say one last point about Liz Cheney. You know, she said the, the, the verdict of history will be on those Republicans. I think that's putting it a little too far into the future, Laura, because not only are, are so many Republicans looking away from what happened, they're moving in the opposite direction. They're operationalizing uh, the big lie and the coup with the laws and the states making it harder to vote, with laws in the states that are uh, making it easier for partisan, uh, you know, uh, meddling in the in the tabulation mm. of the results, and with advocates of the big lie running for control of election positions in virtually every swing state that will decide 2024. So, I mean, this is happening here and now, and the party really has to decide how far it is willing to go uh, in trying to undermine the basic pillars of democracy. And second, what will the public do if they don't? Well, that's the point. I mean, the question was, or statement was, it's a republic if you can keep it. They tried to, I'll give you the last word here, Van, they really tried to hone in the notion that this was a continuing threat. It wasn't just yeah. a retrospective look into history. It was about trying to ensure that this was not a dry run. Did they make that case to at least frame the conversation for the American public to know this continues? Yeah. Uh, look, for the people who are watching, I think that that's that's what should come away for you. That, that's why your blood runs cold. It's not just the, the, the seeing the violence is recognizing this was a massive plot. And none of the people who were behind that plot are in jail. In fact, they are still out there plotting right now. And that's very frightening. Ron Brownstein, Van Jones, thank you for joining me. I will note, of course, that the DOJ has prosecuted or at least charged more than 800 people. But we'll see where all that meets out. Now to the investigation in Uvalde. A lot of excuses from law enforcement as to why it took so long to confront the active shooter killing children and teachers. Now we are finally hearing more from the school police chief in charge that day. He now says he didn't know he was in charge. We'll unpack with the responding officer who led the initial entry into Sandy Hook Elementary next. Nearly three weeks since 19 children and two teachers were killed in a Texas elementary school, the Uvalde police chief is finally giving his first detailed account on why it took 77 minutes for officers to confront the gunman. According to the Texas Tribune, Chief Pete Arredondo told reporters that there was no way to breach the classroom's steel and forced doors. They had to wait for keys. 
Now, in the meantime, he did what he could. He told officers to break windows of other classrooms to evacuate teachers and kids. He says he called for tactical gear, a sniper, and keys to get inside. And when those keys arrived, he tried dozens of them, but none of them worked. And despite all of this, Arredondo maintains that he never considered himself the scene's incident commander, saying, quote, I didn't issue any orders. I called for assistance and asked for an extraction tool to open the door. Now, his belief was that someone else had taken control of the larger response, and he was just a, a frontline responder. I get some perspective now from, Christop- from Chief Christopher Vangeli, who was the first responding officer to the Sandy Hook school shooting. Chief, I'm, I'm glad you're here. I, I do want to play for you a quick clip of a conversation that I had with a reporter from the Tribune who was talking about that idea of being an incident commander or, the, or not truly being. Let's listen in. When the gunman was able to get inside the classroom, uh, that is when Arredondo says sort of the situation gets flipped and it becomes very difficult for law enforcement to uh, get inside, break down the door, as people have suggested. Um, and, and, and now the shooter is inside, very safe with potential victims. And that's what caused the delay. Chief, what do you make of that? I mean, the idea of not only him saying he didn't think he was an incident commander, but just the explanation for why there was that delay. What's your reaction? Uh, thank you, Laura. I, I did read the uh, the chief's interview, um, and I, I have to say I'm, I'm even more confused now that I've read it. Um, the fact that he said he intentionally left his communication gear behind his radio just doesn't make any sense as an excuse. The, the, also, the fact he went in there without a bulletproof vest also tells me that this is somebody that is totally unprepared to handle any situation, which is strange being that his only job is to be a school uh, officer and he has a six-man department, and he only has a certain number of schools he has to patrol. So the fact that he didn't have that equipment and he did not have a key, a master key to get into every single room, um, just you know, it just is unbelievable. As well, far I as the, the, yeah, the I, I ran the public though. He is he is now, I believe, a city councilman. So there's additional responsibilities, and in addition to what he was once was. But the idea of the barricaded doors, I know you're going there in that direction right now. Because we heard initially, and you and I had this conversation, about this being a barricade situation or an active shooter. And you and I saw this timeline. In fact, the timeline that's partially now been confirmed that gives us some of what happened on that occasion. There's still this huge delay and this question of if there were still shots being fired, how could it be thought of as a barricade? Talk to me about that. Yeah, it it definitely was not a barricaded subject. Once that there were shots fired and we knew that this person was in a, in a school building and especially inside of a school classroom, uh, right then tells you it's an it's a active shooter and that that active shooter has to be taken down. Uh, I don't know why, you know, they talk about the door. The door was probably the exact same door that was there uh, when the school was built. Uh, it's probably a sturdy door due to fire codes. And, of course, it's a commercial building, so it has to have a steel casing around it. Uh, So it's going to be a sturdier door than you would find in most homes. However, I don't know why he said it wasn't breachable. Did he try? Did they throw a couple officers against it to see what would happen? The other interesting point is that in one of the interviews that one of the survivors gave, she talked about how the shooter shot through the window in the door. So we do know now that there were actually windows in those doors 
that could be shot through. Mm. And so why they didn't try any number of, of, of uh, you know, different types of assaults and plans to try to shoot that shooter um, is unbelievable, especially since there are more officers there than just his own department. I'm well, very we surprised. From, we heard that from some of those officer... officers, though, Chief. Excuse me. We heard from some of those officers. In fact, we've got some body cam audio and listen in to what conversations were actually happening out in the hallway. It, it, it really, it's foreboding, really. Do we have that clip of them talking about what the uh, what they were hearing? Well, since we don't have it, I'll just I'll just describe it. And it's the notion of um, at one point them saying, "Hey, if there are kids in there, we've got to go in." Another saying that, "Look, we have to wait and see um, who gives us the direction." I'm paraphrasing the, as- the aspect of it. The idea of waiting the direction. Well, if there was no incident commander, if there was no sort of chef in the kitchen, so to speak, I mean, what do you do? Yeah. Well, the, the New York Times. There's a lot of confusion about what an incident commander is. The incident commander is the person who takes charge outside of the hot zone. Their complete job is logistics. They run that whole show. They, about, they, they handle everything from media to finances to incoming departments and where they should stage. The person that's actually in there dealing and going to breach the door, that person is just part of you know your, your initial strike force. Still, that officer, if he was that chief, if he was the highest ranking person in that hallway, then yes, he was in charge. There's no doubt about it. I'm just surprised that you know officers from the state police or the sheriff's departments uh, that had rank didn't basically just step over him and take on the responsibility of going in the door. Why they listened to him is beyond my comprehension. Well, we're waiting. If you're confused, imagine what the laymen of all of us think about this very notion as well and the families who are grieving and want the answer so desperately. Chief Bengeli, thank you. Thank you very much, Laura. Now to some other victims who also deserve answers. U.S. gymnasts who've been failed on so many fronts, sexually abused by the longtime doctor for the U.S. women gymnastics team. Dozens of them are now seeking damages from the FBI, including star Olympians like Simone Biles and Ali Reisman, accusing the agency of mishandling their case. And you're about to hear from their attorney. Next. Some of the most famous gymnasts in the world are seeking legal damages of more than $1 billion from the FBI. They're survivors of convicted sex offender Larry Nasser, the former doctor for USA Gymnastics, Olympic gold medalist Michaela Maroney. He acu- she accused the FBI botching its investigation into Nasser when she spoke before the Senate Judiciary Committee. Listen. What is the point? of reporting abuse if our own FBI agents are going to take it upon themselves to bury that report in a drawer. They had legal, legitimate evidence of child abuse and did nothing. Now, last month, the DOJ declined to prosecute two former FBI agents accused of mishandling the agency's 2015 investigation into Nasser. The agents were accused by the DOJ's watchdog office of making false statements, which the FBI Director Christopher Wray called gross misconduct. Joining me now is Alex Cunney, an attorney for Maroney, Simone Biles, and Ali Reisman. You know, I'm very glad you're here, Alex. I want to just clarify something, because the headlines for some might read, there's a lawsuit. This actually isn't a lawsuit. 
The way it works under the Federal Tort Claims Act, you have to first give notice about the opportunity to or intention to sue. And then they have to have about a six-month period before you have to actually either settle the case or they can decline to engage in that. So right now, you are at a state where you have given notice. Um, How do you see this playing out, though? Uh, we filed the tort claims. They have six months to respond to those, to evaluate them. And we don't know what they're going to do. I think that's what's been shown um, through this process is we don't know what the DOJ is going to do. Um, when our clients reported to the FBI, they expected a certain result to come of that. And they were grossly, grossly disappointed, as you could hear from Michaela's testimony. So Um, We don't know what the result is going to be. They have six months to respond um, to either attempt to evaluate the claims, to settle them or to deny them. Um, And we will react to whatever they choose to do. You know, one thing we do know is they're not going to criminally prosecute those FBI agents. We know there was a declination to prosecute. What do you make of that decision? Uh, It's outrageous. It's simply outrageous. We have a report from the inspector general's office indicating that these uh, agents engaged in misconduct, concealed evidence, and ultimately allowed Larry Nasser to return to Michigan State and sexually abuse dozens of others. So the idea that that can happen um, and nobody's criminally charged for it is simply outrageous. Now, ultimately, your clients are seeking a monetary um, amount, but I do wonder. I know just from hearing their riveting testimony, the power of their words and that lingering question of what is the point? I mean, just the idea I have prosecuted so many delayed sexual reporting cases and talking to victims and survivors of this abuse. And we encourage people to report because we hope there will be accountability and justice to be doled and meted out. What for your clients how will they define accountability and justice here? It's not just about the number. No, it's certainly not just about the number. Uh, what accountability looks like is understanding what happened. Uh, last summer, we got the report from the inspector general's office, and it gave us a lot of the who, a lot of the what, a lot of the when, and finally gave some of those answers. But the most important question that our clients want answered is Why? Why did this happen? Why did highly trained FBI agents um, who presumably have handled cases like this before, why did they botch this so, so horrifically? And, And that's what this is about. It's understanding why this happened. And these women have come forward, um, you know, going on nearly seven years ago now. Um, and all they wanted is their voice to be heard and they wanted, um, to know why their complaints weren't acted upon. So, you know, money aside, that is the most important thing is getting to the bottom of what happened so little girls in the future don't have to go through what they went through. At any time, and I don't mean to suggest that this would by any stretch be enough, but at any time, has anyone stepped up to the plate and offered some semblance of an apology some offer of an explanation of the why, help to try to convey some sentiment. Has any of that happened? I mean, I've heard from them. We've heard the decision not to prosecute. Have they ever had anyone take the time to at least recognize on this level that they were heard? 
you know, I think there was a step taken um, by the testimony provided to Congress, but these women have heard um, lip service from a num- numerous organizations, from USA Gymnastics, from Michigan State, um, and they're hearing the same things from the FBI. Recently, they've been quiet, um, but what they want is those answers, and what they want are uh, real answers to the questions that um, you know linger in their mind about how these girls who came after them could have been prevented this horror that they suffered. Alex Connie, thank you so much. We will continue to follow this really important story. Thank you, Laura. We turn now to a health crisis for one of pop music's biggest stars. As you can see, this eye is not blinking. I can't smile on this side of my face. And that is not all Justin Bieber is dealing with tonight. The condition now keeping him off stage for the foreseeable future. We'll try to walk through it next. Justin Bieber says he's recovering tonight after his surprising announcement. But the Grammy winner telling fans on social media he's canceled a series of shows to fight a rare disorder. It's called Ramsey Hunt Syndrome. My wrist. As you can see, this eye is not blinking. I can't smile on this side of my face. This nostril will not move. So there's full paralysis in this side of my face. So what exactly is Ramsey Hunt Syndrome? Let's ask Dr. Peter Hotez. He's a professor at the Baylor College of Medicine. Dr. Hotez, I'm glad you're here. For many people, they've never heard of this particular affliction. What what is it? How does it start? How do you get this? Well, you know, he's showing signs of uh, facial paralysis on one side of the face. And the most common cause of that is what's called Bell's palsy, which can occur after Lyme disease or even after a viral infection like COVID-19. Uh, A a somewhat less common cause is Ramsey-Hunt syndrome, which is actually reactivation of the chickenpox virus. So it's actually a form of what's called herpes zoster that typically, more typically occurs in older individuals and will often manifest as, as as a band of vesicles of virus and pain around their midsection. But in some cases, that herp form of herpes zoster can affect the facial nerve and be associated with a lot of facial pain, ear pain. Uh, and then that's followed by a rash, uh, a vesicular rash uh, of the appearance of what looks like chickenpox vesicles on the ear and then facial paralysis. Uh, I didn't, in the, in the video, of course, the resolution is not great. I don't see the chickenpox vesicles but uh, that you might see with it, but you don't always have to have that. So presumably he's been diagnosed by a physician. Uh, and uh, usually you, you do recover. Um, sometimes it can take um, several weeks or months uh, before that happens. Uh, the the older you are with it, uh, it's more common to see this in 60 to 70 year olds. The less likely you are to have a full recovery, but hopefully these you know as a young healthy guy he'll will do okay with it. But it could take some time. And I should note you have not treated him um, at all. You are not his medical provider. But I, I do wonder about this, the Bell's palsy as well because it, it piqued my interest when you spoke about. COVID-19 and other symptoms as well, or other um, uh, illnesses. 
What are the distinctions between what you're seeing with this idea of Ramsey-Hunt syndrome compared to, say, a Bell palsy? Well, there is overlap, and the two can look similar, and sometimes it presents a diagnostic dilemma. Usually with Bell's palsy, it's less severe. It, uh, 90% of the cases uh, resolve, and, and I think the big differentiator is less, much less pain and not associated with a characteristic rash, the, the appearance of vesicles. Um, so that's, you know, just looking at looking at his video, I guess that's one possibility, but presumably, you know, he didn't come up with Ramsey Hunt on his own. He must be under the care of a physician, whether it's a neurologist or or some other uh, type of uh, maybe an infectious disease physician who's who's feel com feels comfortable making that diagnosis. Maybe they're seeing vesicles in the ear or in the mouth. Or um, it's hard to really uh, yeah. read the tea leaves of a video, of course. Well, let me ask you how how does one reverse the paralysis? Is it is it a form of physical therapy? Is it amount of time taking its it's time and having to wait. What is it? Well, there are a few things. With Ramsey Hunt, it's actually caused by a reactivation of the chickenpox virus, of the varicella virus. So you take an antiviral drug, whether it's acyclovir, a valacyclovir, or famcyclovir, and and so that's that's of of uh, number one importance. Second, um, sometimes steroids can help resolve the uh, inflammation that's uh, exacerbating some of the. Uh, facial paralysis. Mm, and the okay. third, of course, the most important is time. It takes time to to resolve and it can take a few months sometimes. Dr. Hotez, thank you. You've educated us on something that many people probably have not heard of. Thank you so much. And, and coming up, we'll have chilling new audio of the man authorities say showed up outside the Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh's home on a mission to kill. New audio of the California man charged with attempting to murder Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. The 26-year-old called 911 on himself because he didn't think he could get away with his plan and was considering killing himself. Do you need medical attention? I need, I need psychiatric help. Do you have access to any weapons? Yes, I, I, I brought a firearm with me, but it's unloaded and locked in a case. And you said you came from California. Do you know someone down here? Brett Kavanaugh. Brett. Brett. The Supreme Court Justice. It's the latest example of a member of the judiciary coming under threat as Nick Watt shows us tonight. Came from California. Took a taxi from the airport to this location. To Justice Brett Kavanaugh's home, carrying a Glock pistol and zip ties, says the FBI, planning to kill Kavanaugh. He found the address online. The nine justices, all nine justices, are in danger uh, because that information is out there. According to the complaint, he was upset about the leak of a recent Supreme Court draft decision regarding the right to abortion. The public disclosure on 2nd of May prompted a significant increase in violent threats, reads a DHS memo circulated last month. Some of these threats described burning down or storming the U.S. Supreme Court and murdering justices and their clerks. Abortion has long fueled fury since the Roe v. Wade decision nearly 50 years ago. Anti-abortion extremists have carried out multiple bombings and murders. Now, the DHS, since the leak of that draft opinion that could overturn Roe v. Wade, also fears 
pro-abortion rights extremist violence. So there's now a high fence around the highest court in the land. And last month, I accelerated uh, the protection of all the justices' residences 24-7. Threats against federal judges were already on the rise. In 2014, 768 threats and inappropriate communications against the judiciary, according to the U.S. Marshals Service, which protects federal judges. Last year, 4,511, a near six-fold increase. Not that long ago, you know, I'd write Nick Watt a letter and threaten him, right? Now we have the social media. And so one person tweets something and 300 people glom onto that. And this is, goes to both sides of the aisle, right? One week ago, the date would be devoted uh, to hearing the motion. This retired judge in Wisconsin zip-tied and shot dead in his home by a man he once jailed. We have seen uh, a rise in domestic extremism. I think it is important that we take a look at the, the protective measures that we have in place. Nearly two years ago, a federal judge in New Jersey, Esther Salas, targeted by a self-proclaimed anti-feminist lawyer who once appeared before her. My son, Daniel Mark. Daniel, her son, was shot dead on their doorstep. Judges put their lives on the line to do their job. And really, judges do stand at the front line, ensuring that democracy is live and well in our country. Laura, there is a bill currently stuck in the House. They might vote on it next week. And that bill is named after Justice Salas's son and would improve the security given to federal judges. One thing it would do is make finding things like Justice Brett Kavanaugh's home address online, it would make it harder to find that stuff. Laura. Thank you, Nick Watt. And thank you for watching. The news continues on CNN. Quality sleep is essential. And that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.